Louise McSharry on 2FM. Well, I don't know about you, but certainly my interactions with strangers have been absolutely decimated over the last 18 months as we've been living in this pandemic. And I thought I didn't want to interact with strangers, but actually I kind of miss it. And I think this is something that Joe Keown is probably going to be able to make sense of for me. He's a former journalist and editor and the author of The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World. And he joins me now on the line. Hello, Joe. Hi, Louise. Joe, how did you come to write about strangers? Yeah, I was raised by very chatty people in Boston <laughs> in the States. And uh, so as I was growing up, I get to see them talk to strangers all the time. They were like audacious about it. They would reach across a table in a restaurant and start talking to people. And they were so good at it that people weren't offended by it. They made a lot of friends and it was it, it seemed to be a pretty good way to live. So I did that to a certain extent myself, not as crazily as they did it. But um, but I found a couple of years ago that I had just stopped, that I had eliminated like an entire category of human interaction from my life without choosing to. Mm. And I noticed that I missed it, that I missed the serendipity that I got and the hilarity and the stories and the poignancy and, and the kind of unexpected aspect of what happens when you talk to someone you don't know. So I just started asking questions as to why I stopped. And then I started asking bigger questions like what keeps other people from talking to strangers and, and what are some of the benefits to people who actually do seek out these sorts of interactions. And what did you conclude about why you had stopped? Yeah, I mean, I had a small child and they're a real energy and, and time suck, as we all know. Mm-hmm. But um, she was about two at this point. So that was a lot of time and a lot of attention. Uh, I had a stressful job. So, you know, those two things combined meant that I wasn't hanging out in public like I used to. Yeah. And, uh, and I was exhausted all the time. Uh, and then the phone, you know, when you when you're of a certain privileged position and you have a smartphone, you literally can go the rest of your life without ever talking to a stranger again. Yeah. And so the mix of those two things made me choose kind of the efficiency of doing everything by phone and not actually talking to people. And I felt pretty bad about it. It's, I can really relate to that because I think as well, when, you, when you're in that phase of your life where you have small children, silence is at such a premium. <laughs> and anytime <laughs> you have the opportunity to just be silent and alone, you kind of take it. Um, yeah. So then presumably once you realised that you'd done this and, and you began to try and kind of claw back those moments with strangers, you, you felt a benefit from it? Yeah, I felt, I felt good. I mean, I felt... Um, you know, I had a conversation with the actor Alan Alda about this, who I was interviewing for a story. Um, I always felt relieved. I felt sort of calm and relieved after I had had a positive interaction with a stranger. And so I wanted to figure out what that was. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, part of it may have been biochemical that if you have a really good interaction with someone, it releases um, oxytocin, you know, Mm -hmm. which is the the bonding molecule. And that makes us feel calm. But I think a lot of it was just the relief that it went okay, that I didn't Mm -hmm. make a fool of myself. And I wasn't like harmed by this person I talked to, because we do have a very negative perception of strangers a lot of the time. Yeah. And I suppose, as you said, the the phone is part of that technology has made it so easy. I mean, even like, you know, I was getting a takeaway the other night and I the the delivery guy, I ordered it online, so I didn't speak to anybody. And then the delivery guy rang from outside to tell us he was there. And I was complaining to my husband. I was like, why do they do that? Like, you know, I'll see you when you get to the door. I don't need to have that conversation. And I do feel like I've moved into that kind of complain about any kind of human interaction that you have. But technology, I suppose, has robbed us of those minor ones that you might have had, where you might have rung, rung a shop to find out what kind of hours they were open. Of course, you can just Google that now. Right. Yeah. In in the research over the last 15 years, psychologists have started to study what happens when we have these little interactions, like anything ranging from a little chat with like a delivery guy to a deeper conversation on a train or something um, that it's actually very good for us, that it's overwhelmingly 
uh, it goes better than we expected it to because we don't expect it to go terribly well. I mean, I think Ireland might be a little different than a lot of places. Mm -hmm. um, and America is a little different too. Um, but it makes people feel happier. It makes them feel more connected to where they live. It makes them more optimistic about the people that they share space yeah. with. It makes them, it can make them feel more trusting, applied in a certain way. It can even alleviate things like prejudice and, and polarization. The problem is it, it does involve effort, right? And yeah. we have a bias towards efficiency as humans. Like there's the principle of least effort, they call it. We do the thing that's easiest. But we, we're not mindful of the long-term ramifications of what that means. Mm. And when we withdraw from the possibility of even these passing pleasant interactions with strangers, um, we see rates of loneliness skyrocketing. We see rates of social anxiety skyrocketing. It's not good for us. It's easier, but it's we're not getting what we need as social creatures. I mean, that makes total sense to me. I I was at an event last week, my first kind of event of that kind since before the pandemic. And I was standing in the queue for the toilet and I started talking to the girl beside me and our conversation, like we were giddy, you know, the energy of the conversation was, I would say, very high. Um, and afterwards, I felt wild. Like I, I felt like I was on drugs or something. I just felt completely wired, so excited. And like, this is life. Life is back. I, I talked to someone I don't know. And I didn't know it would have that impact on me. But I, I tweeted it and I got such a huge response that clearly, I mean, that just endorses what you're saying. We need it, yeah. don't we? I think we're so, we need it generally, right? We need it like we need food. It's part of our nutrition. It's our mental health diet, right? But I think coming out of the, the pandemic, provided we are actually coming out of the pandemic, right? Um, we're so starved for it yeah. that you do feel a, like I got to charge off of it in a way that I didn't before because yeah. I was stuck in this apartment in New York City this entire time, you know, with a screaming small child. I don't mean to malign my child twice in one interview, <laughs> but that got pretty claustrophobic <laughs> and I missed that sort of social contact. And, um, and I found that when I did have it, even at the worst of the pandemic, when people were like chatting with each other in the street from a safe distance, it was remarkably beneficial. Yeah. And it seemed to be good for them too. People seemed to feel better. So what would you say to someone who's listening and who's like, yeah, yeah, but I actually just don't want to talk to anybody. <laughs> How would you encourage yeah. them? Yeah, a lot of people... Um, you know, I think people aren't necessarily aware of the importance of it and the benefits of it. So, you know, being cognizant of that is important. But a lot of people, you know, researchers have found um, are just worried that they're not going to be good at it. Yeah. Um, and this was before the pandemic. They're just worried they're not going to know what to say. The people are going to think there's something wrong with them because they're doing this. They won't know how to end the conversation. All these things. So there's a lot of insecurity bound up in your actual ability to perform these sorts of conversations. Right. The good news is that according to the research and according to the zillion people I spoke to for this book, uh, it tends to go very well. It mm. tends to go much better than people anticipated. People yeah. are pessimistic, so the bar is not very high to clear, but overwhelmingly people tend to have a pretty positive interaction. And then they learn that they needed something they didn't know they needed. Yeah. You know? And that's how you end up kind of changing the way you live, which is certainly the case for me. And obviously it doesn't always go well. So <laughs> what do you do when it's not going well or like... I I've, know there have been people in my life, for example, who just for whatever reason, every time I talk to them, I, I panic and flounder. I'm just not capable of being a normal person with them. Maybe it's because I think they're <laughs> cool or like, you know, for whatever reason, I'm on the back foot. Is there a good way to exit a conversation with someone when it's not going yeah. well? Right. Yeah, you can just if people worry about that a lot. Yeah, too. that's a fear that a lot of people have is that you're going to look rude. <clears throat> you can just excuse yourself. You can just say, you know, it's great talking to you. I got to run, but um, I hope to see you again or, or whatever, something like that. And people tend not to get offended by it. Yeah. If you're just backing away 
like f- like feeling for the door <laughs> behind you uh that's that's not gonna go over so well but um but yeah again like people do tend to have pretty positive interactions pretty positive experiences and it's important to do it in a place where you feel safe i mean i'm not going to yeah. generalize my experience as like a straight white guy um but to do it in public when there are people around to do it in a service capacity when you're talking to someone at a shop where yeah. you're like your roles are clearly established and they can be reasonably assured that you're not a threat you're not yeah. you know you're not you're not damaged or dangerous in some way yeah um that that tends to go pretty well but my you know i had a right a great a pretty great run doing this where i really didn't have any bad ones that i found myself like backing away from yeah um, and what about i mean were there any particularly special ones or particularly memorable encounters when you were kind of pushing yourself to talk to strangers yeah i spoke to a, a woman um whose name i couldn't use because i had to respect her privacy but mm. a, a young homeless woman who had a sign that said i've lost everything but my um my smile and my hope and so, you know, ordinarily, this is awful to say, but people don't spend a lot of time thinking about the homeless, you know, unless you're, you're especially a good person or an, an active an advocate of some way. But I went over and I just asked her why she hadn't lost her hope. And she told me her story. And it was this astonishing story that was very dark and very tragic, but also really funny. And she was brilliantly, brilliantly articulate and hilarious and just became a friend. So anytime she was by a library that I used to do research out of, yeah. um, I would go over and hang out with her for a while. And, yeah. and she gave me a sense of what it was like to be a homeless person. And again, we know intellectually that this is horrible, right? Mm. But it's not until you really talk to someone that you internalize it. Mm. And it changes the way you look at the same street that they're on. You yeah. know, like that street, what that street represents to me is fundamentally different than what it re- represents to her. Um, and I found that really valuable. But I had, so, I had so many interactions like that. And would you have ever kind of, you know, was that part of your kind of work for the book or work in what you were doing in terms of approaching her to talk to her? Or was is that something that you maybe would have done in your previous life? I don't think I would have done. Maybe if I was in a certain mood, I would have. Um, but I was definitely putting myself out there. I wanted to talk to strangers, but I really wanted to talk to people who I might feel anxious about talking to. Mm-hmm. And I think that that that's at the core of the book is that when you talk to people whose lives are different than your life, mm-hmm. um, whose perceptions are different than your perspective, that's the road to wisdom. And that's the road to better citizenship in a way, you know, that sort of empathy that you gain from firsthand experience of yeah. people who've, who have lived, lived very different lives than you have. Yeah, it's interesting, because I think sometimes, um, you know, that that particular situation can be challenging because you worry that you might seem patronizing or that you might be offensive and you don't want to seem like you're kind of, you know, the saintly person, you know, deigning to speak to someone who's in a challenging circumstance. Um, And I think in a way that puts people off. But my experience of speaking to homeless people is that actually, you know, the worst thing you can do is just ignore someone because they are ignored so often people just walk by and don't even make eye contact. I'm just, yeah, yeah, I was just thinking there when you were, when you were saying, you know, speaking to people from different experiences or with different backgrounds, it reminded me of, you know, what we, when we talk about social media, in particular Twitter, and we talk about our echo chamber, um, you know, you tend to surround yourself with people whose politics you agree with or whose kind of morals or ethics you agree with. Did you kind of have any conversations with people who, who came from a different political background, say, or maybe whose opinions you completely disagreed with? Yeah, I spent a whole week with a group called Braver Angels, uh, which is this American um, organization that literally trains Republicans and Democrats to speak to each other, to like wow. to be able to tolerate sitting across the table from one another and mm. have a conversation. Um, so I got to see the effect that that had on these partisans. And these weren't necessarily moderate political people. They were moderate in temperament and that they were willing to try this. Yeah. But you got to see that once you get past that initial hump, 
they were shocked to find that they could have a conversation, that there might even be a couple things that they could agree on and that there was the seed of potential cooperation. It's not something that's going to like fix every problem right away, yeah. but it was like a remarkably hopeful um, thing to see, like how giddy they were after realizing that these people that they hated prior to this, um, that they actually were interested in them, that yeah. these people were fascinating to talk to, that they were humans, right? Because yeah. part of, you know, polarization is dehumanization in a yeah, way. Yeah. And seeing that the other person is a full human and that you can sit in their presence and you can have a conversation with them, even if you're just talking about your dogs or something, yeah. um, was really reassuring. And that's like, that's not going to solve problems, but that's the beginning of solving problems. Yeah. Is, that sort of thing and it involves humility and it involves curiosity and it it involves respect which are things that are certainly not incentivized on twitter yeah well i suppose it's important that we remember that isn't it i'm I'm kind of reminded of we had some very polarizing referenda here in ireland over the last 10 years and one on marriage equality and one on abortion and Mm -hmm. um you know i've spoken to lots of people who canvassed who who knocked on doors and who found that they were very nervous about the experience at first, the idea of not knowing who was going to open the door, not knowing how the conversation was going to go. But largely, people can be civil and you can disagree without it being explosive the way that it kind of is online. Yeah, I think when you do it in person, it keeps the interaction on the rails. Yeah. Because when you're fighting with someone on Twitter, all you see is the embodiment of an idea, of yeah. an opinion. And you're not you're not registering that this is like a full human being. Yeah. When you do it in person, number one, there's the threat of like being slapped across the face if you're a jerk to somebody, mm-hmm. you know, like there, there's the, there's the possibility of consequences, physical consequences. If you talk to people in person, the way you talk to them online, yeah. but you get to see their face, you get to hear their voice, the, the paralinguistic cues and the way they speak that demonstrate that they're human, their body language, their smile. All these things give you a much more nuanced and much more complex perception of who that person is yeah. in a way that's really beneficial. And a lot of interactions that happen on online lack that all those guardrails have been taken away yeah that's not to say you can't have great conversations online you just have to be really disciplined and really um like intent on having a good conversation on being curious about somebody a guy from a guy from texas once threatened to kill me um, for a story that i wrote and i i was just like i'm gonna i'm gonna try to make this guy my friend and i just reached out to him and we had like you know, initially a suspicious interaction, but then it ended up being like kind of a great interaction. And he ended up inviting me to Texas to go drink with him if I ever got down there. Um, But you can do it. You just have to resist the temptation to dismiss and be contemptuous. Wow. You have to be open, I think. Yeah, you do. So I presume we're not planning on stopping talking to strangers anytime soon. No, it was great. You know, it, it, it had a real profound effect on me. I'm a pretty skeptical person. I'm a journalist by trade. I was raised by funeral directors. Like I'm under mm-hmm. no misapprehension about what the world is. Um, but I think what it did by having as many interactions as I could with other people is that it gave me a fuller or maybe more complete perception of what humans are, mm-hmm. where if I was only getting my perception of people from like social media or the news, I would think that people are garbage, right? Yeah. Like it's unavoidable. Yeah. But when you're out there in the world, you're talking to people and that's good and it's beneficial, but it also gives you better data on what people are like, the people around you. And for yeah. me, I came away, you know, remarkably optimistic at a fairly dark time yeah. um, in a way that was really beneficial. And I have a little kid and I'm, I'm raising her to do the same thing. Yeah, I love it. I think it's it's a really good thing to even just stop and consider, you know, for a conversation like this, because it is very easy to get bogged down in what you see on the news and what you see on the internet and to forget that at the end of the day, we are all human beings and most of us are at our heart good and um, very few people are intent on doing bad in the world. And if you can kind of get to that space, I think it's a lot easier to, to keep going. 
Well, yeah, I agree. I have so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for coming on and having a chat to me. That's Joe Kiohan, author of The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World. Thank you so much, Joe. Thank you, Louise. Louise McSherry on 2FM.